Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Oh, okay, right, so my name's uh, <laughs> Professor Leslie Carr. Welcome, thanks very much. It's very nice to see everyone here. I'm, it's really great to talk here because... Um, uh, so I'm from the University of Southampton. This is, this is uh, my building. That is my office, just there. Um, from what we now think of as the Web Science Institute, um, we've been re- really interested at Southampton in the development of the web, um, involved with Tim Berners-Lee since, um, since he started. I'm going to tell the anecdote. Uh, I can feel it coming on me. Uh, we had, um, in the, you know, sort of the, 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 at the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, we were doing all this re- research into a topic of, called hypertext, something that the web uses. And we had this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful system. Uh, and we took it to a conference to do a demo. And on this table and next to us, there was this guy sitting with his demo. We looked at it and thought, that's rubbish. It really has very little in it that we haven't seen before and it's all far too simple it ignores a lot of the really sophisticated work that's been done by the community and by us Um, and ours is clearly much better so our system was called microcosm and it was lovely and you've never heard of it and his system was called the web and he was Tim Berners-Lee and that's how we met him um, and we we come to we come to be really good friends. Uh, he works with he's got a part time um, chair professorship with us at Southampton, and we have this thing called the Web Science Institute, which is really interested in looking at the web, but not just having lots and lots of computer programmers looking at the web, see how we can how it's built and how we can make more web and how exciting it is, but look at the the real impact that the web's had. Um, on our lives and to use social scientists and, and lawyers and sociologists and psychologists and economists to think about what the web is doing to us uh, and the, the political processes, the economic processes, the way it's changing, you know, sort of the way we do shopping, the way we do um, uh, political engagement and voting and discussion, the way we find partners um, all of these things and, the, you know, sort of the way that our, that our, that our lives uh, are changing and the implications for the future. And I've got uh, a group of students. We've got about 50 PhD students doing um, research into different ways, uh, different aspects uh, of the web and into uh, open data and how you get new value out of the web into uh, the ways that people are getting strange kinds of value out of the web uh, uh, and that, that they shouldn't have the good ways and the, and the bad ways that people use the web. The web, of course, this thing, is really just a, you know, some really geeky, techy things. Three really small things, which is why we were so disparaging of it when we originally saw it at this conference. It's an abstract information space, according to the World Wide Web Consortium, that uh, allows you to take information resources, give them special addresses, which we call URLs or URIs, and has this rule that lets you get a representation of what that, you know, that resource is or looks like in, um, in you know, a language that everyone can understand, like HTML. Um, and the way that you do that is to ask a special question on the internet and that thing's called HTTP, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol and it's those three things, URIs, HTML uh, and HTTP which form the web, the, the heart of the web that we, that we talk about. Now if you were my students in my lecture 
I, give, uh, I kind of have this, uh, I take over a nursery rhyme, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, and we rewrite it to, for the web architecture, and I get them to sing it so they remember it and they can reproduce it in my exams. Uh, uh, we don't have time for that, unfortunately. Uh, and the point about the web is that Tim just created these small things, and then the rest of the world created what we think of the web. And almost everything that you think about the web now, about searching things on Google, looking facts up on Wikipedia, shopping for things on Amazon, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, updating your, your statuses on Facebook or Twitter, um, updating your CV on LinkedIn, these are all things that other people have invented using this technology. Um, and we've, we've, we've changed. It's not the web that we first had. We've got a new thing, and it's a much bigger thing. And one of the things that's happened, you know, there's some great things that have happened. There's no reason why anyone should be ignorant about a topic, basically, anymore. No reason why you should say, I don't know. You should just get your phone out and, and, and uh, look something up. You would think this would have an enormous impact but it, it doesn't. There are all sorts of interesting reasons why it doesn't, which I could share in another time. Another effect that it has is the you know, sort of gradual erosion of privacy. The fact that we, you know, sort of everyone knows what everyone's having for breakfast or what they're doing on holiday or exactly... I remember my children tagging a photo... No, they, they took a photograph of me uh, sleeping on the sofa, on the sofa after after a, a particular evening meal, and they piled me high with all sorts of household objects to see, you know, uh, and the loser was going to be the person. The, which of my children uh, put the object on me that caused me to wake up? They put a photograph on the, of that on the web. Didn't mention my name. Then other people on Facebook tagged that photograph. I walked into my lecture the next day. And the whole lecture theatre went, Buckaroo, which is the name of the... And, and they all knew about it. And, you know, so, loss of privacy. I'm not saying any more. And, of course, it's not just the loss of ignorance, you know, sort of widespread truth going out across the whole world. There's all sorts of dodgy facts and, gut and com newspaper commentary going on, you know, comments on newspapers and bots you know, sort of pretending to be people and anecdotes and spinning and exaggeration. And so, you know, it's like the press was before. You didn't just believe something because it's on the newspaper. You don't just believe something because it's on the web. Anyway, so there's lots of interesting stuff. Do you remember these headlines from about 2008? Uh, do you remember any of those appearing? Um, we're all going to, are we all going to die next Wednesday? It turns out to be... Turned out to be um, an example of Betridge's law, the law that says if you have a headline that ends in a question mark, the answer to that question is no when you read the article. So, so people were worried about... What was it that people were worried The LHC, Large Hadron Collider. So CERN was building this thing in its secret underground... Well, not very secret, but it was an underground nuclear bunker. You will have to give me that. Uh, and they were, they were building this thing to find out about the universe... Uh, and people were worried that they were doing it in a way that would create black holes which would, uh, which would escape from the Large Hadron Collider and reach out and sort of suck in the whole world and destroy civilization as we knew it. Now, that didn't happen, thankfully, but what they all ignored was the fact that something had already escaped from CERN. It had leached out into the world, 
and did take over the world. And some, you know, some commentators say, oh, is it destroy- you know, is it making our world a worse place? And that was the web. And so in 1989, something that had been designed for physics researchers kind of started to leach out from, from CERN, um, a, a research uh, a research um, academy in, uh, on the French-Swiss border, underground, um, and you know, started to get out into the, into the research universities and then into research companies, and then away from research companies into you know, sort of retail companies, and we started to see URLs on the side of buses, and we started to do our shopping online, and we started to meet people online, and, and all sorts of things just started to change about the world. And, but the really interesting thing about the web, and the web that, we, that we've got and the web we use and love, is that it was a web that was built by a bunch of physicists, of high-energy physicists. Now, interestingly enough, they were investigating in the Large Hadron Collider something which, you know, sort of about the, the, beginning, of, the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, as they call it. And there's something really exciting about the that because the universe used to be tiny, really, really, really tiny. This t- everything was packed into this tiny volume in the, the initial billionth of a millionth of a trillionth of a second. And then what happened was there was this phase of expansion, this incredible expansion, and the universe expanded to kind of the sizes that we see today of uh, billions of light years in either direction. And so when you look into the sky now, you can look in one direction and you'll see (coughs) stars and galaxies and nebula and galactic clusters and all sorts of things. And if you look in the opposite direction, you'll see exactly the same kinds of things. Not a mirror image, but it's it's all pretty much the same stuff to a a very accurate degree across across the whole universe. And the universe is unimaginably large now. And the reason for that was... It started off really small and compact, and everything was the same because it was all very close to each other, and boom, suddenly turned into something else. And that's the same as the web. The web started off in one place in a government research centre in CERN, and suddenly, within a couple of years, boom, expanded to encompass the whole world. And that means that the kinds of software that these uh, physicists put together that solved their kinds of problems, which was, we've got all the money we need, we've got millions and hundreds of millions of dollars for all the equipment we need, got all the people we need, we're all joined together trying to do one thing that we all agree on. We're not worried about you know, any other scientists sneaking into CERN and trying to steal all the large hadrons. You know, we you know we all work together. Everyone is honest, and we're you know we share our knowledge because we've all been paid to do that. We're not in competition with each other. We don't have the English in one corner trying to do what you know sort of make the experiment go in one way, and the French in another corner trying to do it a different way. We're all pulling together because we've and we've all been given all the resources we need, and that's the kind of web that they built. Something that understood that, so it had no security in it. It had, you know, it was just assumed that everyone would share everything, and that web escaped into our world. 
But of course, society isn't made up of research scientists, which I'm quite glad about, actually, because they're <laughs> A, predominantly male, and B, really quite autistic. And so, you know, sort of the world is bigger than that and has bigger concerns. And so you have different, you know, the academy, hurrah, God bless universities across the world, but predominantly they're funded to do something, to be really, really clever and to share their knowledge as much as possible. And what government wants to do is to make the, the step between the universities and industry as small as possible so, you know, that, all that lovely new knowledge and information can flow across. But that's not true for commerce, you know, we, you know, Amazon doesn't want its books to just flow into people's pockets. It wants, you know, um, Time Warner don't, don't want their, their movies to just flow onto people's computers. They want them to pay for them, thank you very much. They want there to be bar barriers. You know, the, the press, the newspaper industry would like people to pay for their work. And so there are all sorts of things that different parts of society want that aren't in tune with academics. And so the web we've got doesn't necessarily fit exactly everything that everybody wants, and the web that we've got wasn't, isn't inevitable. Over the last 100 years, there have been lots of attempts to make a, some kind of global, worldwide system that people could share information around. Uh, and, it, you know, I... Uh, I choose rather arbitrarily to start with Reuters. In the 1850s, they had started up um, trying to uh, build a business around selling information about the stock market in Paris and the stock market in London. And they were trying to get information about the, you know, the shares, the prices and the trading that was going on between those two centres. Pretty much the fastest way you can get information between any two points was a man on a horse you know, at that point, and as it had been for centuries. And so they managed to get a competitive advantage with a new technology, which was carrier pigeons, right? And so they had, they had birds flying around um, uh, uh, between, uh, between London and Paris, and then they took on this new invention, you know, the, uh, the telegraph, you know, and they, you know, sort of all sorts of Morse code going up and up and down. And so they built their business on being able to get information between two widely separated geographical spaces really quickly. Um, there have been all sorts of other things going on. We had, um, um, if you think about technologies, Minitel in France uh, was a. Uh, um, the, uh, telephone-based, modem-based, you know, sort of information from businesses to, to homes and homes to each other. Um, not too dissimilar to something like the, um, uh, you know, CompuServe and AOL bulletin boards uh, that we had that over the broadcast, over, over TV, we had things like uh, CFAX and Prestel, uh, none of you look old enough to remember those things, um, uh, but over the last over the last hundred years, e even before computers, people were trying to do this. In the Second World War, we famously we look back um, uh, before the web. We look back to something like uh, the Menex in 1945, where someone 
a, a guy called Vannevar Bush, who was in charge of the American war effort, the scientific effort in America, to try uh, and uh, to well, win the war, obviously. He noted that he had, you had all these scientists working in silos who didn't know anything about anything else. And so he, he proposed a machine which had all the world's journals on it. It used microfilm, you know, so you photograph things at a tiny, tiny size, put them on a film so people could really put lots of those films together in a desk. Um, and you had this system of levers and pulleys and things that would stamp markers onto these things that would create links so that you could read one thing and say, oh, this is, someone says this is related to something else in another journal entirely on another topic. He invented hypertext at a desk using technologies without computers, without networks. And so we came through and eventually there's enough stuff in place that the, when the World Wide Web comes along, you know, we've got enough of the internet in place. We've got, lots of people have got modems and, and things. We've got, we're starting to get digital cameras, there are pictures, people want to share those pictures, that, you know, they want to make information about things, people are fascinated with the idea of the online, that we've got America Online, we've got CompuServe, we've got all sorts of, all sorts of things going on, and it ju there's just enough stuff in there for it to take off. And so the web that we actually end up with just happened to be the one that was created in, uh, in academia, if you like, by researchers as opposed to, say, the one in the 1960s, which came out of Hollywood, a Hollywood guy trying to put together a system that, that had copyright and micropayments at the centre of every transaction and every page view. Did, did, did um, Tim Berners-Lee put copyright in? Ah, because we're all in this together. We, there is this. And so in, in, the acade in academia, we've got all these... these Thing, you know, sort of increasing openness with the web, you know, sort of going in this direction. Yes, we, it'd be fantastic. We can share more data. We can get more research done. We can do more understanding and knowledge. But on the other hand, there are other things pulling us back. In the, we haven't worked out how to, do, to, make, to, to make this sustainable and to get a business around it. And then we've got the, the arguments for business. Um, uh, this comes from Anne McCrossan. Uh, visceral media and she, you know sort of looking at what what effect does the web have on business it, the same as academia actually it pulls down the barriers it it makes things porous it stops uh it allows people to communicate more actually this is one of the key things about the web it allows us all to communicate more it stops the barriers but you know we invented a technology allows every person in the world to communicate seamlessly with every other person in the world. What can possibly go wrong? You know? That, and hence, you know, we're seeing this huge problem with trolling, you know, with misogyny, and you know, all, sorts of, all sorts of threats of violence on the web that you know, sort of we find very distasteful. But it's just, it's just pulling away the barriers that stop us doing things in real life. So how do we tell if the web is a good idea, if all this openness and sharing uh, is a good idea? And part of this is the Open Data Institute. So the Open Data Institute is a fantastic place in which some of the advantages that we've seen already with you know, taking these, these ideas from 
from academia and saying to governments, have you thought instead of charging for this really valuable data and stopping people using it, putting a, putting a, a, um, a barrier in place to its use, you actually make it free for people to use so that they can go on and build new kinds of value, they can do new kinds of service. So we have, we kind of got this hypothesis, you know, very good for, for, um, for universities to have hypotheses to think, oh yeah, we believe this will happen, we're going to go out and test it. What the, what the Open Data Institute does is actually, set, you know, help set up businesses and mentor people and teach them how to do this and, sh and, and allow the whole of, you know, the business sector and government to really start you know, experimenting and seeing where does the value lie. It's all very well us academics saying, oh, we think it's probably, probably a good idea. Do you want to go and try it? But, you know, sort of we, we're not very good at business. The ODI is great at business. And so collecting, one of the roles is to collect the stories from businesses where this has happened, to do the training. And uh, if, you've, if you've been to the, o the ODI, you'll know this is what they do. Um, up here, this is a, just a picture of one of my students who's starting uh, her project um, now, this week. Um, she's looking at, she's trying to understand, you know, sort of what, what value can you get out of open data? How can you build businesses? Where, do, where does it work? Where doesn't it work? So hopefully we're going to be working together very closely with the Open Data Institute. I told you about uh, the Web Science Institute. We want to know... What is the impact on, the, on our society? What, have, you know, what did we invent? What was this thing that escaped from CERN? And how is it impacting the world? What we're hoping is the ODI is going to, is going to lead in that and showing that these, these are the really good things that are happening. <coughs> so the web... Tim Berners-Lee is often crediting, credited with web, uh, inventing the web, and he, he says people, you know, on occasions people have come to him and said, "What? How did you possibly have time to invent the whole web?" And he's, you know, and his point is, "Well, I didn't." These are, so this is the, the three ideas that he invented. Just to recap, uh, URIs, you know, an idea that every piece of information should have a have an address, a location. HTTP, the idea that you can have a conversation over the internet, you know, it's a given address and you'll get back some information about that thing. And HTML, the idea that there'll be a standardised way of understanding that description of that thing. And from that, people just took that and invented all sorts of things with it. They built all sorts of new value on it. So e-retail, internet TV, social media, internet porn, web journalism, search engines, e-health services, streaming music, computer dating, internet piracy, online <coughs> MOOCs and things for, our, for universities, and open data. And this is, this is a really, from my point of view, this is really exciting. This is society experimenting with a new way of arranging itself, reorganising itself, reorganising its economy, um, and dealing with the problem. You know, we haven't got there yet. You know, sort of all the worry about care.data. You know, are, are, are the right processes in place for our, for our institutions to be able to handle large amounts of data? Um, privacy and Facebook, well, privacy and the NSA and GCHQ. 
um, these are all, we are all trying to come to terms with what the physicists thought would be a jolly good idea and make their lives easier. And at the Web Science Institute, I hope that it is making our lives better. And at the Open Data Institute, they're really trying to um, put that into practice. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.